Hi there and welcome to the Book Realities Podcast, a series of interviews with independently minded authors where we explore their books, their writing techniques, and what made them become a writer in the first place. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and as well as being an independent author, I also run the Book Reality Experience. Book Reality, turning writers into independent authors. Hi everybody and welcome to another Book Reality's interview with authors. And today we're joined by Robert Horn, author of Made in Cambodia. Hi Robert, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, so tell us, tell us all about yourself. Who are you? Where are you? Where are you from? And what did you do in life? Oh, well, um, all of life. That's, that's easy. I'm from Adelaide. I was brought up in Adelaide. I'm sitting here in uh, Mile End, Adelaide, South Australia right now. And um, I grew up in the uh, suburbs and uh, I took up reading at a very early age because I had a mother who had sets of classic books that were placed in the living room and I was encouraged to read and I did. And um, I went to a comprehensive, good good quality comprehensive high school, Adelaide University, did a BA and went travelling, which travelling has always been a huge thing in my life, travelling and writing. They were the only two things that I ever really wanted to do seriously. Um, working as a middle manager in the public service was something that I did do sort of seriously for 18 years. And then um, I topped off a BA that I had from the 1970s with a diped and I became a senior secondary teacher for about 16 years. So off and on. So I, I taught classical studies as well as English, mainly more classical studies, which is nothing to do with Mozart and Beethoven, but some people think classical equals classical music. It's not all like that. It's ancient Greek society and culture. And I did like Athens and Sparta, um, the contrast of the cultures there, which is to simplify it all, democracy and totalitarianism, incredibly relevant to the 20th century and beyond, and also um, Homer's Odyssey uh, and Greek drama, tragedy, Sophocles and um, stuff like that. Then, well, I did a, a an MA in creative writing at Adelaide University during that or 15 years, 20 years ago. And then I did a, which gets into our point, I did a uh, a doctorate of creative arts at the University of Technology in Sydney, which was a writing which ended up with a novel made in Cambodia. So that's a, a, it's a very esteemed academic career, especially within the Greek classics to come from that, to move your way forward to write a book which is, not a Greek classic, but in set modern times and modern uh, multi-cultural uh, romance novel, really set against a backdrop of um, cultural and social upheaval. That that's a leap from from Sparta and Greece. Well, I did, I I did 
classical studies and ancient history at university in the 70s. So when I became a teacher, you they see that and they think, oh, well, you're a classics teacher. And so I, I got a job as a classics teacher at um, a uh, Catholic girls' school nearby. And then I had to go back over 25 years and say, oh, the honesty, I'd better read that again. I can't remember much. Um, so you sort of relearn those things. But in Cambodia, I found so many similarities. I mean, I became hooked on the, um, the ancient Greece all over again. But And I did ancient Greek religion at that school. And the Cambodian religion um, with ancestor worship and having little shrines or spirit houses, as they call them, in every house and in outside so many shops and hotels and cafes and all that sort of thing, this religion is so similar to ancient Greek religion where they did the same thing and they believed that ancestors could influence um, happenings within the house today, tomorrow, and that they had to appease and welcome the ancestors and put out cups of, well, coffee now, but in those days something else, little cakes and drinks and things like that to keep them happy and know that they were remembered and still loved and all that sort of thing. Exactly the same thing happens in Cambodia today. So I did see some parallels in Cambodia, but but the book started in Vietnam when I just saw, and I know this was one of your questions, the provenance of the book. Um, uh, I saw a uh, bloke who I judged to be an Australian or maybe around 30, getting off a bike in front of me as I'm walking up the street, going to an ATM, getting his money, getting back on the bike. He's got a girl there, a woman, a, a Vietnamese girl. This was in Hanoi. And uh, they just looked so comfortable together, just so naturally happy. I was sort of heartwarmed by it. And they rode off and I just couldn't help but keep wondering um, about them. Where does he come from? I think he's an Aussie. What's her social class? Obviously, nicely dressed and educated, so you know you can guess the social class there. But I kept wondering about that. And the next year, my partner and I went to started from Saigon and went through Cambodia. And I thought, wow, this place is even more interesting. And um, but the idea of the book was still there, the novel. So the year after that, I went back and for three months and started talking to people and getting their stories. And there was uh, one person that I got to know quite well whose family background story is essentially Mali in made in Cambodia. I, I used it. Now, all the this, all this stuff in there about her having nine siblings and the last one was a boy and they kept going they had seven daughters in a row before they got the boy they wanted. All that's just totally true. Made in Cambodia, though, wasn't your first foray into writing books, was it? No. I 22 years ago, I did a um, professional writing, you know, TAFE-level sort of course, but I started writing short stories back there. And I had a book of short stories published in 2004. And 
in 2013, I had another book of short stories published, some of which came out of the masters that I did. But also at that time, I started reading, um, well, I did a review of a book called De Ochre and Rust by Philip Jones, who is a big wig at the South Australian Museum. And it was about frontier um, conflict objects in Australia, all around Australia. And um, there I got hooked on a, um, a chapter about South Australia and a shield, which was the frontier object from which that whole um, chapter sprang. And the stories of some of the early colonists and their interaction and, and their very close um, interaction with the uh, Ghana Aborigines here and William Cawthorne in particular, who was a historical character who the Ghana chief wanted to initiate in his to his tribe. He had been brought up in South Africa, had no fear of black people. He, they were more friendly to him than the colonists were who saw him as lower class, you know, and that's what Adelaide's like. But um, so I got interested in that story and that's where um, I started writing I wrote a full draft of the, what became the novel The Glass Harpoon before I went to Cambodia and did all that stuff and then did the doctorate and rewrote uh, Made in Cambodia or expanded it a bit to be fully publishable. In a doctorate, you only get 70,000 words to uh, play with and it had to be plop, 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 plop move along all the time and there wasn't enough interior stuff. So I added another 13 or 12,000 of, of so, interior work afterwards to explain, to un get you to understand those characters a bit more implicitly, you know, rather than, you know, allowing people to read in. Yeah. So they actually build the character out to be a full three-dimensional character rather than just moving the plot along so quickly that you don't get to yes. know the characters and where they come from. Yeah, there's a there's a scene in Made in Cambodia, only twenty percent or so of the way into the story, where our character sitting in a um, cafe, pizza bar, and this is straight from something that I did. I sat in a pizza bar one night, and uh, it's in the book. Across from me, there was an Aussie bloke, a stoner. Obviously, there's a type there. You know, they go to. Cambodia for the cheap weed and they they meet then this guy's obviously met a woman you know and their family and there's two boys two cheeky little lads you know about eight and nine and they were crawling under the table and coming over and waving at me and all this sort of stuff and then they got up and they left and they went out the tuk tuk he's sort of dreamy eyed and she's together drinking wine fast and uh, I thought well you know they are a family and. In the novel, the guy is thinking about, he's met this young woman and he's thinking about the possibility that it's not possible, you know, to join a Cambodian family. And then here's this bloke who has, you know, right there in front of him and he's sort of, if he can do it, you know, why can't I? Um, but my supervisor at the university said, well, how does this advance the plot, Robert? I said, well, <laughs> well, well, well some psychology, you know. Oh, no, no, no. He made me cut it out. 
And it was one of my favourite bits. So, of course, that's the kind of thing. When you get back, right, it's my book now. I've got my PhD. I'll put that back in and, and I will add in things like that which make it more complete. Yeah, and it just fills the plot out to be a more uh, wholesome experience. Now, the other thing is that Made in Cambodia wasn't your last book. Um, what happened with your last, your most recent book? Good that you asked that question right there because I was telling you the story about how the other book, the South Australian historical novel, started, and then I did the um, doctorate and Made in Cambodia. And when I, when I, that was all done, I went back to the Glass Harpoon, um, which I'll explain the title in a minute, but it was linear. It was start A to Z time frame, and all the first half was in Adelaide and there's my hero and his friend Cawthorne learning about the Aboriginal culture and witnessing affrays between tribes and things like that. And the second half is all set in the north and all the action is there because my character who falls in love with the Aborigines, really, and with the Ghana people and their incredible culture, has to go and join shooting parties to clear Aborigines out of he and his brother's new property. So it was a bit lopsided, you know, in place and style. So... I've started it in the middle and broke it into nine parts so that it, it ended back in Adelaide after what happens, happens. Um, so that involves some rewriting. And also I'd written it in a, a real Victorian language and a couple of people who read it thought that that was a bit too foreign sounding. So I took... 70% of that off and just left it in the dialogue, watered that down a lot and made it much more readable. So that, that novel, I ended it in the Historical Novel Society of Australia competition last year and made the last nine out of 115. So it went, went fairly well. I mean, fairly well. You you got onto the long list and then onto the short list of one of the most prestigious historical awards for literature in Australia. So that that's better than fairly well. I think that's understatement. <laughs> um, well, it is the top historical novel award, and I think it's it's the richest um, genre fiction award in Australia, yeah. i.e., after the Miles Franklin. So it was, it was very well done indeed. Now, you said about the title, The Glass Harpoon, um, and I, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about Made in Cambodia, but The Glass mm -hmm. Harpoon's a, a title um, which actually has relevance more than just a, a fancy-sounding title. It, it has relevance to the novel. It certainly does. It's an object which um, Matthew Larkin, my romantic hero, um, falls in love with the uh, Ghanas, they go to see an affray between the Ghana people and the men from the river, River Murray. And um, he eventually discovers that the reason that the fight is on is that the Murray men want to initiate their lads in Ghana country, not happy Ghana about this. Uh, the Ghana have been weakened by smallpox. Uh, the Murray men come up, and what that means is, when they're initiated, they can also they can hunt 
wherever they are initiated. And to hunt implies that they can also trade with the white man. So they were fighting over access to the white man. But after this, they find an, a broken spear because the police come and break it up. It's against the law for, for the Aborigines to fight. And it's not against the law for the white man to fight. But they come and smash everything up, all the weapons, which they've spent a week fashioning. But the glass harpoon is a spearhead with a thing like a harpoon on the end of it. And Matthew picks it up and he says, gosh, Cawthorn, old chap, this looks like glass, this stuff. He says, it is glass. He said, how do they get glass? Well, they get glass from the white man. They love glass. It's sharp. They And glass has found objects on seashores and that's highly prized by the Aborigine because they could make spear tips. They could cut kangaroo hides off as opposed to Compared to stone tools, you know, that take weeks to make glass is a fabulous thing. So they see it as the white man's magic. And they put it together with native twine and resins from yucca plants and such like that. So it's a hybrid object. And, and Matthew, it, it, Matthew, it symbolizes the fact that they can live together white man and the Aborigines. He's one of those who believed it was possible. And there were a lot in Adelaide who believed it was possible. There were humanitarians all over the place in Adelaide. And there are also pastoralists who were here for profit. As I've said in some speeches that I've made about that, well, the colonial secretary and the colonial treasurer were from either camp, Guja and, and Gillies. And it's like having Sarah Hansen Young running a colony with Barnaby Joyce. There were some conflicts. But so my man's from the Sarah Hansen Young camp. Anyway, that's it. The, the, um, the, the glass harpoon is this hybrid object which he carried as his talisman in his pocket. Excellent. So have you had feedback from members of the um, present-day community within and around Adelaide of the Aboriginal people? Oh, yes. Well, I went to see... Um, Uncle Lewis O'Brien about that and, and talk to him about some aspects of it. There's an acknowledgement in the book about nine things that he told me about, which I used in the book. Um, and so it's accepted by them. But the book is about the white people, really. And, so, the, and, the, good and, and the good and the bad that was done within the settlement of South Australia. Yes, and um, what I was really writing about was trying to expose what Uncle Lewis also confirmed for me, and that is, this is the important bit, the um, existence of oral history among the Ghana people about systematic um, shooting parties that went out and rubbed out blacks' camps. Um, I've also had oral history given to me by a bloke that I know who is a descendant of a um, pastoralist family, a very well-known pastoralist family here. Then he told me that blokes came around on Sunday mornings and rode out and with the shotgun, seven or eight, and cleared out a blacks camp. I read the uh, history written by a family member of family here, South Australian, she said, when the boys came to the property, there were 500 blacks. Ten years later, there were none. And that's the sort of, re that's the sort of reportage that you get. It's sort of euphemistic, 
and um, deflective, you know, and that's as close as she would get. This was written in the 1970s when there was a bit more um, awareness of these issues. I mean, it's it's more than vital that we make sure that that history is is known to future generations as to what actually happened and how it, and how it took place. So when you're doing the research for, obviously, the glass harpoon, which was quite a lot of academic research and reaching out to communities, but made in Cambodia, you actually went to Cambodia and had a look around and, and saw things that you brought into the novel. Um, out of all of that, what's been your most surprising discovery? What's the thing that you've come across and thought, my goodness, I never knew that? When I first started going up there, as I said, I, I went there for three months to collect stories, and that was before I even applied for a um, to do it as a doctorate. Well, year before that, but I I did, and to his credit, the um, my supervisor at UTS was fascinated. He said, "I know nothing about Cambodia, right? Sounds fascinating. Let's do it." You know, wow someone's going to take a chance on me. Incredible. Um, people were more conservative in Adelaide, didn't want to know about it. Mm. But I found that people in Cambodia, the traditional beliefs are, and this ended up being quite a big part of what I did, that the traditional belief is not only in ancestors um, that we talked about earlier, but in spirits of the forest, things called nink. Nikta, which are like grandfather spirit. If you want to cut down a tree, you go out in the forest and ask permission of the spirit and then come back three days later and do it. But also, really importantly, black birds, like crows, that they call what ravens, which they call the raven. Raven is the way. If they come and sit on your house, then that someone is going to die within three days. I've heard of this sort of gothic, Early American um, country belief, you know, in yeah, early Edgar Allan, Edgar Allan Poish. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's there now, still. And uh, part of my my original contribution to research for that degree was I interviewed forty young people in Cambodia in two separate trips about their beliefs, and these were people who obviously had English language training were at universities and how much did they retain against um, an assumption of 100% um, belief acceptance in rural village communities. And uh, the ethics people wouldn't allow me to ask whether anyone had died after a raven coming sitting on the house. This is university ethics committees. I had to go through that whole ethics um, and submit my list of questions. And I wasn't allowed to ask them about Pol Pot and I wasn't allowed to ask them whether anyone had died. But three of the 40 volunteered, you know, excitedly volunteered to me that, oh, my auntie died, you know, three days, two days after the raven came on the house. So, and, but I did ask them if they believed in this. and. Um, there was still 75% of people, educated 
20, 21-year-olds um, believed in that. So that became a part of the novel. It's interesting that within that rural countryside, um, regardless of the education levels, like um, I'm from Northern Ireland and we have the tradition of the banshee and the wailing and people who are eminently educated and professors and they'll still harbour that idea that there's something within that ancient folklore which you don't, you might not necessarily fully believe in it, but you're certainly not going to say it's not true. That's, that's fantastic because there's a scene in um, Made in Cambodia where Mali, who's the scientist, she's the medical student after all. She's getting near the end of her degree and she's supposedly a scientist and her sister is the garment worker who believes in all this stuff. You know, as according to my research, so my research spoke to the book beautifully, but they go back and their auntie and uncle who come from France um, they have no one seen in 40 years since Pol Pot. They die in the floods because there's, there's a massive flood. I mean, and there was a massive flood when I was there, you know, so they're all just ideated to me. And the auntie says that the, the raven had come to the house and Mali goes, ooh, the raven, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and... And so it's all there. Shiver goes down her spine, you know. Yeah, exactly as you say. There's education there, but the belief back here or somewhere inside you is, is still. Yeah, still. it's an intriguing thing. Now, um, we've, we've spoken at length about your writing. What do you do when you're not writing? What What's your hobbies and interests? Well, looking at it, I, I've got... I grow, I like to grow things. I like, and I grow my own food to a degree, you know, capsicums and eggplants and chilies and spinach and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I love to do that. And sometimes when I've been away out of the country, what do I dream of? Yeah, my, the garden. So I, that, that's a real hobby for me. And also uh, cooking. I, I cook every night for myself. And uh, apart from that, theatre and films, all pretty normal things, but I'd like to grow my own food out there and make a ratatouille or something like that with all homegrown ingredients is satisfying and it's also healthy. No. With regard to your books, I mean, you've been applauded for uh, the Glass Harpoon in the, in the award. But what's the best feedback that you've ever had for any of your writing? Well, I guess that is it. But I, since then, I've become friendly with uh, one of the judges who um, friended me on Facebook, requested, and I spoke to her. And um, I've been over to Victoria and seen her, Carmel Bird. She won't mind me mentioning her name, who's been was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin three times, I think. But she just said... You know, she loved it and she told me all the things that she loved about um, the glass harpoon. And um, so that's probably the highest ranking, you know, bit of good feedback. But I've also had old school friends have come out of the woodwork and um, people I hadn't seen literally for 50 years 
because I've done a few speeches. So it the subject matter works in really well for speeches in um, civic libraries and things like that because it's South Australian history, history that people don't know much about. I mean, not just the violent contact, but just the early history of the humanitarians that I was talking to you about versus the profiteers and the clashes that there were there. I, I do a lot about that and then go into um, the frontier stuff. It's it's really fascinating history, unique stuff. But um, so some guys from from school have bobbed up and bought copies and then bought copies for Christmas presents for other people and things like that. And that's been, and, and loved it. And that's been about the sweetest thing that has happened because they've got into it and loved it and sort of supported me and, and sent more copies out into the community. Oh, that's great. That's very good. So mm-hmm. you mentioned that you're in the process of writing another. So what, what is next and when would this be coming out? And have you got a working title for it? Um, it, it's it's a um, satire of academic life, really, and it comes out of some of my own university experiences. But it's about um, it, it's also about a central character's uh, insecurities and uh, overcoming those insecurities. And he um, he has a figure called the Stick Man that he sees around town that he. It's like a, what is it, Jungian projection. He projects his inferiority onto this person and he has to um, defeat this person in his own mind. So it's a bit of a psychological novel as well. It's called The Death of a Stick Man. Excellent. And when do you think roughly will this be hitting the, hitting the shelves? When someone wants to publish it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're always, you, you know us, we're always happy to help independent authors get their books out into the world. So. Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you ever so much for your time. I want to try and end off on a quick set of quick fire questions if you're, if you're game for answering them. They're very trivial, but, um, but we'll, we'll get a little Jungian projection insight into you, depending on the answers, we hope. Are you, are you okay for this then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> okay then, Robert Horn. What is your favourite book? <laughs> um, don't know. I used to always say the brother, brothers Karamazov to that. Next question. What's your least favourite book? Gosh, book that I hate. There must be a fair few that I haven't read. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm. Next one. What turns you on? What excites you? Great writing that's not overwritten, but good, simple writing that um, that reveals its complexity as it goes along. And I'm thinking of maybe um, Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Okay, so conversely, what turns you off? Well, too much action, I suppose. I guess it's the psychology for me and the characters. So cardboard characters and too much action. Summer or winter? Yeah, I'm an autumn man, but I don't mind winter. Okay. Um, on a completely free day to do anything you want, who do you spend it with? Oh, I go and see um, my friend, 
Um, we don't live together, but she's my partner, and we'll just probably go and have brunch and go to a movie together and then talk about it afterwards. Excellent. Now, that's, that's a decent day. Good. Mountains or oceans? Mountains. What's your favourite movie? 30 years ago, of all that romantic Hollywood stuff, I used to really love Casablanca and also The Maltese Falcon as classic movies. The Maltese Falcon bears um, reviewing um, over and over again, I think. Um, in modern times, I was talking about a couple of early Jack Nicholson films recently with someone, Five Easy Pieces and The Last Detail, are both uh, very interesting films. So I'll, I'll whack them in right now. Good work. Um, if you've only got one song or piece of music to listen to for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think Glory, Glory, Tottenham Hotspur would probably get a bit boring after a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it definitely would. <laughs> very quickly. Um, um, I don't know. I, I don't think I, I've been a bit of a punk rock fan, actually, but I don't think uh, I would listen to the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, over and over again either. But uh, I'd have to think about that one. That, um, there are two good choices, though, for, for you if you had to, but I think they would drive you quietly insane if you had the lips. Yeah, that's right. On repeat. Think, um, um, a torture session in Guantanamo Bay with them on a loop. Would probably yeah, would, would be very effective. Um, who, who makes you laugh the most? Um, I, I quite like the uh, old-style uh, gag comedians, um, Rodney Dangerfield and uh, Penny Youngman. Very good. Um, what smell do you love? Uh, coffee beans are pretty good. And... Oh. Uh, yeah, and the other day we were out in the morning. And, oh, yes, we went to a bit of a charity walk down on the river here. And uh, some, there was hot oil. Someone in a van was making hamburgers, and uh, that, that came over all right. Nice. <laughs> and what smell do you hit? Shouldn't say. <laughs> Um, okay, we'll move on. Um, other than the professions that you've done, what would you like to have attempted? When I was a student or deciding what to do with myself after sport, it never, ever, ever occurred to me that I might do the law. And um, a friend of mine from school that I shared a house with did and the sort of study that was involved with that seemed a lot of memorising case, case studies and things like memorising, 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 the sort of thing that I don't like to do because it's critical thinking and creative stuff that I like best. But I, 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 wouldn't, I would like the, would have liked the challenge of getting into a uh, law court and um, arguing for something, if you could ever get to a point of arguing to something that you believe in. But lawyers often argue for things that they don't really believe in, but that's just another complication of life. And what profession would you not like to have done? I don't know. It'd be a love-hate thing with the law. I mean, I could easily make a case for that. <laughs> you know? So lawyer for wanting and lawyer for not wanting. Okay, yeah. then, and we'll end this off with, if heaven exists, 
What do you want God to say to you when you get there? Good effort. Good. Give it a fair try. I've I've changed um, occupation and so on through life. And I was talking to a bloke from when I went to Vietnam. I went to this crazy tourist place called the Banar Hills, and you might have you might have seen it, which it has a, a bridge which appears to be held up by the, the hand of the the spirit of the mountain. But there's a cafe there that we're all herded into, and I ended up talking to a bloke from Singapore who had very good English, and he asked me what I'd be doing and so on. And I've done this writing doctorate relatively late in life, and he said, God, you've had a rich life. You know, you are having a rich life still. And um, so I guess I like, yes, thank you, I said to him, and I suppose I'd say that to um, God, that. You know, I've been doing things and trying to use my time in an interesting way not and not doing harm. Nice work. Well, listen, Robert, thank you ever so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, and good luck with the next book. Uh, thank you. Um, it's been great fun. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for listening to this latest episode of Book Realities, our interviews with author series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and turn your notifications on so that you never miss any content updates from us. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or a review as it really helps the podcast's visibility, as does passing the pod on to any writers or author friends that you may have who you know will be interested in it. And join our exclusive mailing list at www.bookreality.com. The next episode will be released this time next week, but until then, stay safe and well. All the best.